Welcome to the Sport Fuels Life podcast, where we're bringing you interviews with coaches and athletes at the top of their game. This is a community to support coaches, athletes, and fans who share a passion for making the world a better place through athletics. We are serving our community and providing a variety of resources to grow and win as a team in the sports we play and the life we live. We are your hosts. I'm Ashley. And I'm Megan. And we're so excited to bring you all things Sport Fuels Life. We're so excited about today's guest my friend Marquita Settle. We went to high school together in Columbus, Ohio, where I had a front row seat to the beginning of her amazing athletic career. Marquita was a seven-time university letterman during her participation in softball, basketball, and track and field. During her senior year of basketball, Marquita was a team captain and the team co-MVP. She was named first team all mid-state league an honorable mention all district. During her senior track season, Marquita was a team captain, led the team in scoring, set a school record in the 100 meter hurdles, and was named the team MVP. She was inducted to the Hamilton Township Athletic Hall of Fame in 2012. Marquita received a full academic scholarship to attend Otterbein University, where she participated in track and field. In 2001, following conference championships in the long and triple jump, Marquita was named the Ohio Athletic Conference Most Valuable Field Athlete. In 2003, she was named the Dorothy McVeigh Award winner, which designated her as the most valuable female athlete at Otterbein University. She was a two-time NCAA All-American for her performance in both the 55-meter and 100-meter hurdles, making her way to be the first female track and field All-American at Otterbein University. Marquita remains the 100-meter hurdle record holder at Otterbein. She graduated magnum cum laude at Otterbein University in 2003 with a Bachelor of Science degree in Molecular Biology. In 2005, she married her college teammate, Matthew Suttle. Matt is both a teacher and high school cross-country coach. This conversation is so special because we discuss Marquita's experience from star high school athlete to college athlete, mental health and the pressures of performing perfectly, what it's like to be a black athlete in a small town school, and what coaches can do to better support athletes of color on their team. Without further ado, here's our conversation with Marquita. Hey Marquita, welcome to the show. We are so excited to have you on today's episode. Ashley and hi again. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I'm very honored to be here. Awesome. Well, let's just kick this thing right off and maybe take a few minutes to share with us who is Marquita? What has your path looked like? And how did you come to find your love of sports? What has your journey been like through high school and college? Where have you landed today? Because knowing you and knowing where you came from and the same community that we grew up in, I just know you have been on a truly incredible journey. Yeah, it's interesting. I think being on this end of it, it seems like it took forever, but at the same time, it also seems like it went really fast. I've known you for a long time. And I mean, we had conversations when I was in elementary school and I've always just been very committed to becoming a physician. I can't, I don't remember. I mean, maybe a few years in middle school, I wanted to be a backup dancer for Janet Jackson. But outside of that, I've always wanted to be a doctor. And so all of that education, all of that schooling here, like 15 years of training, and I'm now a pediatric intensive care doctor at Nationwide Children's in Columbus. I live in Westerville, Ohio. I married my college sweetheart, Matt Suttle. 
And we have two little boys and we, we love our life in Westerville and we love where we live and the community that we're surrounded by. But the journey's just been, it's been an interesting one. Uh, difficult at times for different reasons. Lots to kind of reflect upon, but I grew up in a suburb of Columbus, so Hamilton Township, which is just south of Columbus, Ohio. I was there from kindergarten through 12th grade. It is a predominantly white school district. I think it's a little bit more diverse now than when we were probably there, but definitely very much a white community at the time. I think there was probably about 15 black kids in our entire high school. But I grew up as, you know, the only black kid in my neighborhood, one of 15 to 20 black kids in our school. So that was definitely an interesting dynamic and something that you kind of learn to cope with and learn to adjust to as you grow. I went to college at, it was Otterbein College when I went there. It's now Otterbein University because it's bigger, which is in Westerville, Ohio. Much more diverse there. So a lot of different perspectives from, from that standpoint. I went to medical school at Wright State University, um, Wright State School of Medicine in Dayton. Came back to Columbus for my residency, my pediatric residency at Nationwide Children's and stayed there for chief residency, stayed there for intensive care fellowship, and now I'm a faculty member as part of that staff. So it's been a long journey. And like I said, lots of ups, lots of downs, but for the most part, just a lot of learning and a lot, a lot of life experience. And I know that we're obviously on your, you know, we're here to talk about sports and kind of my experience as an athlete. And there was a time where sports was my life. You know, that I feel like that's really how I defined myself as an athlete, specifically in high school and in college. You know, that's just, it was kind of like get up, shower, brush your teeth and practice or train in, in some way. In high school, I was a basketball player. Actually didn't start running track until I was a sophomore in high school because I was a softball player my freshman year and just took to it kind of right away and, and loved it. I think my love of it really grew in college. I went to a division three school and so people there are not on athletic scholarships. So if you're there practicing and running and participating in track in D3, it's because you love the sport and want to be there. So there's a, it's a really fun and a really cool dynamic on your team and then also within your conference and network of other track athletes. Um, but I think that's where I, where I learned to love the sport. I was there. I was part of the team for four years there. I mainly was a hurdler. So I ran the 100 meter hurdles, long jump, triple jump, and was part of our relays. That's how I met my husband. He was one of my teammates. But yeah, I think that, like I said, that was a, there was a time in my life where I defined myself as a track athlete. And it was a really hard transition out of that and letting that go and then having to define myself as a med student and then a resident and then, you know, a physician. But that was the best time of my life, I feel like. Um, the memories and the friendships, and just also the, the skills and the life lessons that you learn from being an athlete, particularly a collegiate athlete, they are, I mean, invaluable. They still impact my life every day. And what I also find funny is anytime I interview for a job or I'm interviewing other people, people look at my resume or I think people must Google me. I don't know <laughs> how that works, but I, I still to this day, years later, I mean, it's 20 years since I've been in high school and 10 since college. So I still get asked about track all the time. So that's, that's a fun thing that that kind of, those memories and that that situation that was such a big part of my life, still things that come up frequently for me. So that's kind of my journey. It was a good one. Definitely, obviously, some hardships and things that are tough given my situation, but I, I don't regret it and I would do it all again. Can you talk more about making that transition from being college athlete to being professional career person and how that felt and looked for you? 
I think the sadness of it is just, it's missing your teammates and just missing those relationships and missing the, I guess, the thrill of winning a race. And then also like your team winning a championship and cheering on your teammates. Those relationships are just irreplaceable. And those experiences together are just things that so many people don't get to experience and it just impacts you forever. But the thing that is great about sports, especially on a college level, is that, I mean, there is weight room, there's nutrition that you have to be aware of, you know, there's practice. And then you're also a full-time student. And then I also worked a job. So you have to be really good at prioritizing and balancing your life and organizing your life if you want to excel in all of those areas. If I had to choose like the one thing or the way that I think track benefited me the most in my career and my success, it's that. It's just teaching me how to organize my life, how to prioritize things, how to multitask and kind of balance all, you know, keep all those balls in the air. And I think that even to this day, I still am really good at that and probably better at that than other colleagues just because of those experiences. I mean, because I am a researcher, I'm a pediatric intensive care doctor, and I'm a mother of two young children and a wife. So that takes a lot of organization and, and a lot of balance. And I think that that just comes from years of practice of doing that as an athlete and being disciplined. Um, so I think that's really the positive aspect of it. I think it definitely makes you a team player and definitely strengthens your collaboration skills for anything that you're ever a part of. The sad part about making that transition is you miss the relationships with teammates. That's like nothing else. And it's really special. Well, for one, I love hearing, you know, your track background. I'm also a track athlete myself. It's just, you know, listening to everything that you've experienced through your athletic journey and just growing as an athlete and as a person in general. It's no wonder that even on job interviews 10, 20 years down the road, you still get asked about sports. I'm just curious, you know, if you can speak more to your athletic journey and just having grown up in a primarily white community, did you face ever at any moment just any type of discrimination for being a woman of color on your track team? And how did you face any negativity that came your way? That's a great question. I'll start by saying that I was really lucky that every team I was a part of, even in my high school, which was predominantly white, I never felt like I, I was never made to feel different from my teammates. I had amazing coaches, both in high school and in college as well, that never made me feel different at all. And I think beyond that, they also made me feel as if they supported me and had my back. So I was really lucky in that way, that I never felt that way from my teammates. I never, there wasn't a day I sensed that on my basketball team, my track team, and certainly not in college either. What's interesting, I think, about where myself and Ashley grew up is that it's a small, I would say, kind of like farm town. There were corn, there were cornfields everywhere where we grew up. So not only is it, you know, a predominantly white community, it's very much a blue collar kind of farming town. And so kind of the good thing and the bad thing about that is sports is life in those small towns, right? It's everything. And it's, you know, the traditional big sports like football, baseball, basketball, that kind of thing. And so I really view sports for me as kind of my one of my saving graces, I think, in in high school. I mean, this is just, I mean, this is purely my my opinion, but I think racist people and people that are um, discriminated against other, I mean, those are cowardly people, right? Like they, they're scared of what they don't understand. And so in those senses, I think that they often tend to target people that they don't think are going to fight back. And so as a child, I feel like the vast majority of the racist comments that I received, so playing in my front yard, being called the N-word, having, you know, people say things to me at a friend's house or having the N-word spray 
painted my house. I feel like a lot of that took place when I was younger. So when I was kind of in elementary school, maybe even middle school. And I think it's because I was an easy target then. You know, when you're a little kid, you don't understand those words. You don't understand what that means. And even when your family explains it to you, you don't really process it because you're just not developmentally there yet as a young child. And so I feel like I got a lot more of that as a young child. But I tell everybody that I, that I, I talk to that my, the reason I refer to sports as a saving grace for me is that I was a good athlete. Like that that was something that stood out about me. And so even for, for those people in our area that were racist and didn't necessarily love Black people or had their own preconceived notions about what Black people were, the fact that I excelled at sports and so in a way brought a sense of pride to our community was a means of me kind of, I don't want to say getting their respect, but basically getting their reprieve. I don't feel like I got as much guile when I was older. And it was probably a combination of I was older and getting to a point where I could defend myself. But but also because I was really good at sports and my picture was in the paper a lot and I had a lot of accomplishments. And so again, it kind of felt as if maybe they let up on me a little bit or it didn't happen as often because, you know, the community is the bigger thing for them. And I was bringing a sense of pride to the community, even though they didn't necessarily love me as a person, but I guess what I represented at the time because, you know, sports was a big deal in our community. So I, when I think back about it, I feel like that really was something that protected me or shielded me for a lot from a lot of racism and discrimination that I think I could have received as an older teen. I mean, there was still stuff there, but it was a lot less frequent than when I was, when I was younger. That's a really good point. I feel like most of the Black kids in our community were very much like accepted because of their performance in the sports world. And I think that there were maybe a handful of kids that weren't athletic, but they were of color and they weren't as integrated. Yeah. And I mean, it's on one hand, as a kid that's living through it, it's kind of like, you know, it's like a relief to feel that you're accepted, even though you're, you're really not, but your perception at the time is that you are. And it's kind of this, it's, it's a relief, but now reflecting back on it, you know, that's also feeding into the stereotype, you know, that that's what black people are good at, right? Is Mm -hmm. sports. So of course the only reason they can go to college is because they have an athletic scholarship or because they have some kind of minority scholarship, you know, so it, it feeds the stereotype, but as a kid living through it, it is, it feels, like a sense of relief and you have this perception that it's acceptance but in reality it's kind of acceptance with a big asterisk <laughs> sure. yeah I do real- feel like though you were able to kind of smash that stereotype because you were such a I mean you were an exceptional student a huge leader in the school itself just the school community but also the school sports community can you talk about how you navigated that leadership and maybe even in high school and college and what you learned from your experience? Yeah, I'll kind of talk about it in two parts. So the leadership aspect, something that's important to know about me is that I am probably one of the most competitive people you will ever meet. I don't want to lose at Connect Four. I don't want to lose at Checkers. Like this was just me from the time I was four until now. I feel if anything, I've mellowed a little bit, but I learned very on that it was fun to win. And I learned early on that I like to be the best at things and not in like, I don't, I hope not in like an obnoxious way, but I just really liked turning in a project and it being well done. I really liked doing a book report better than anybody else. And I think when you are that person and you're really competitive, and I really think it comes from my dad, my maternal grandfather, who I call my dad, who raised me because I was the youngest of five girls. And by the time I came around, he was like, okay, I'm not going to get a boy. We're just going to make this one a boy. So I think he kind of made me that way. I think when you, you have that personality, you have that mindset, especially as a child, 
growth. Even if you tend to be on the quieter side, which I was as a younger child, you still don't, I mean like that still outweighs the quiet. Like wanting to win and wanting to excel for me still outweighed my quieter tendencies as a younger child. And so I think when you have that mindset, a lot of times that kind of naturally leads to leadership. I don't ever remember being a part of a group where I didn't go into the group and have an idea of how I thought our project would be or should be, or having at least making suggestions on that. And that I think just kind of strengthened itself along the way. And I think from a team perspective, because I had coaches that supported me and kind of saw those qualities in me very early on, they helped to hone those things and kind of empowered me to be a leader on the teams that I was a part of. And I think a lot of it was just like people that are on your team are doing in class with you and kind of used to your personality. And so they also are used to you kind of leading these situations. So it's so funny because I, I have had multiple situations in my life where people have said, you know, you have such strong leadership skills. And for me, it just is just that something that's very natural and always has been and something that I kind of navigate towards. So, and I think that comes just from being a very competitive person, even as a young child in that the joy I get from just really turning in like quality work or winning a game or winning a competition. So I think that's where the leadership came from. And it really, that part of it wasn't hard to navigate because I was lucky to be on teams that were accepting of me and supportive of me and to have coaches that were accepting and supportive of me. What's interesting, though, is that when you are a Black person, like a Black student, and now like a Black physician, especially a Black female physician, I still feel like, I'm sure that you've heard other people of color say that there's kind of this invisible expectation that you it's not good enough just to be good. Like you always feel like there's this invisible barrier and that you have to excel beyond that. For instance, you mentioned earlier that you, you kind of felt like I was a leader at our school and like I kind of bashed those stereotypes in the, for lack of a better word. From my perspective, I felt like I had to do that. Like you felt like I can't slip up. I can never make a mistake and be in trouble. It's not good enough to get a 95 on anything, you have to get a hundred on everything because people are expecting you and they're waiting for you to fail. They are, when people expect you to be one way, I felt like, again, I needed to be another way and not because at least at that time, it wasn't because I, I didn't want to do it for myself. It was that acceptance piece. I need to be perfect so that these people will accept me. And so they, they can say that about other black people, but they can't say that about me. So I do think that even subconsciously, that was a lot of who I was in high school, even though it probably looked differently to other people. And the, the tough part is, even though I was a straight A student, I took school really, really seriously. I enjoyed school. I was a really good athlete in my school. And I do think that I was a leader in my class for sure. There's still people that doubt you. I remember our award ceremony my senior year academic award ceremony and my competition was Garrett Blavelt. He was one of my classmates who I still adore to this day. He's such a nice person and there's a lot of stories there, but we were the top in everything in our class. And at that award ceremony, it was kind of like I got 50% of the awards and he got 50% of the awards. And when he leaves there, everybody's like, that's a smart kid. But for me, there's still doubt. Like, did I get help? How did I achieve that? Did they just give that to her because she's black? I remember getting questions and my, watching my parents get questions when I got a full ride, a full academic scholarship to Otterbein. Oh, did she, did she get an athletic scholarship? Were you able to like, I mean, you guys are lucky because there's probably all kinds of scholarships out there for, for black kids, right? Despite the fact that my academic performance my entire life was excellent. Mm -hmm. And so that's where that comes from. And that's when, so when people of color say they always feel like they have to kind of, the standard's different from them. It's the standard of society. And it's also just ingrained in us. I think that acceptance piece is still there, but 
for me at least, it became, I'm going to prove these people wrong. They can think what they want, but I know what's true. I'm going to do this for myself and all the people that doubt me or think that someone handed something to me, I'm going to do it by myself on my own and prove all of these people wrong. So that's, it's interesting that you, you say that. And cause I, I agree, like, I think I did it more than as an accept to be accepted. And at some point it turned into kind of an anger. Like I'm going to do this to all of these people wrong. Um, but that's, I think that's where it comes from is just the, the standards are different for people of color than they are for other groups. I just feel like there's something there with like maybe speaking to the mental health of black kids who do put that kind of pressure on themselves. And like, what does that do to your mental health when you're trying to constantly strive for this perfection and it never feels good enough? It does a lot. And there was a lot of, I feel like the Marquita at school was very different from the Marquita at home. And there are very few people that ever saw me kind of break down and feel that. I think I was a very anxious kid in middle school and high school. And that's, I think, when I said I felt like my love of track really didn't come until college. I really think that was a big part of it in high school. Because I honestly joined the track team because Mr. Shaw, who was my coach, saw me running in my neighborhood and said, you should do this. And my best friend Aaron was on the team. And so I joined it and then I happened to be good at it. The pressure of continuing to perform in excellent fashion grew every year. You know, the first time I went to the state meet, I remember being in my blocks and dry heaving and thought I was going to like, you know, throw up in the, in the horseshoe in Columbus, Ohio, because it was just so much pressure. And so here's this thing that I'm known for that gets me accepted in this community and I'm going to mess it up. And everybody's expecting me to either excel. And if I do mess up, I'm going to disappoint these people and I'm not going to have the same acceptance. So it does a lot. I think it was unhealthy for me from an anxiety standpoint. And I didn't have the coping skills to deal with it at that time. And it really made specifically track because it's more of an individualized thing, like individual events. It made it really hard and it makes me sad that I didn't enjoy it as much as I should have. And it really started to become a job and kind of like an expectation and not something that I loved anymore because it was so much pressure for me and I didn't handle it well. And I think I could have been even better if I had been able to deal with that and deal with the bigger picture of kind of the pressures of that and the pressures of school and being perfect and excelling beyond, beyond people's expectations. I've kind of had stages in my life. I feel like, you know, eighth grade for whatever reason was a big turning point for me. I think that's a year that I really found my voice and felt like I could stick up for myself a little bit um, in terms of race issues and when people would make comments and kind of knowing what to say back and getting mad at people. And then I feel like college was another big transition for me and just kind of accepting, I got to do this for myself. I'm going to stay in this sport. It's got to be for me and just not feeling that pressure. And I was a better athlete for it, for sure. And I think I dealt with the anxiety and the pressures a lot better in college. And I don't know why. I think it was just a different feel, being around a lot of different people, a lot more diversity, just the support that we had on our team, the experiences we had on our team. I'm not really sure what the change was. I, I suspect that it was a lot more of feeling comfortable in my own skin and just being okay with, you know, what I could do and what was good enough for me. And I don't know, it was just, it was different. But I, I feel like I didn't really give myself a break and let myself breathe and truly start to love track until I was in college. And I think it probably had a lot to do with getting out of the small town that I grew up in. But it makes me think a lot about other kids that don't necessarily, and I'm not saying that my mindset was ideal, but I think I had really good friends and really good support from those friends and those coaches, more importantly, those friends' parents that helped me deal with that. 
it makes me sad for other black children and other children of color who probably experience the same thing, but don't have that support net network. And then also have things like poverty and other things that even further impact mental health. It's eye-opening and it really makes you wonder how many kids are dealing with that and how many children of color, their success is affected by things like that. Well, that is incredible. And they do say that pressure makes diamonds. So you can tell through your story that it just pushed you to success. And it is so much pressure to bear on yourself to be enough for yourself. But as you mentioned, also to an entire community, and it almost seems as if you did enjoy the sport more and enjoy life a little bit more as you felt more support. Marquita, I'm just curious for any advice for our listeners out there. What is a good first step in opening up and whether it's having some difficult conversations or standing up for yourself. What is a good first step that any of our listeners can take out there to make a step towards positive change and feeling enough in their own skin? I think for me, because I've been asked this question a lot lately from a lot of very well-intentioned friends. For me, the biggest things, one, you have to have Black friends. I mean, that's it seems really simple and stupid, but you have to have people that don't look like you and your circle of friends because one, that's the only way that you are going to learn about our differences and take the next steps, right? The other thing I say is that I think when you have a good friend that's a Black person or is a person of color, you you feel these things more. There's more of an emotional motivation to make change. And so like my best friends, like I feel like they feel the impact of what's happening in our country more because they think of me and the conversations that I have to have with, I'll have to have with my son someday. And so I think it makes them more driven to be part of the change in our country. That's a big reason that I think it's a must that you have people of color in your circle. And the other thing I always say, because I get a lot of questions from my friends that are parents, is that you all, your kids have to have friends that are black and have have to have friends that are people of color. Same thing. And it's for the same reasons. I have a lot of friends that live in white neighborhoods whose children go to predominantly white school districts. And you gotta, you have to inconvenience yourself. I'm not telling you to move, but if that's your situation, then that means maybe you drive a little bit further and you go to a church that's not in your area. And when you're signing your kids up for sports teams or different groups, you sign them up in communities with more diversity. But I think that's a big first step is making commitment to being part of that world, both for yourself and for your children. And the other big thing I would say in terms of making change for the future for our whole country is that teach your kids empathy. And it's not just teach your kids about Black people. I really believe if you if you teach your children how to be empathetic to people of all different colors, cultures, religions, sexualities, they're going to have no problem being, you know, racially sensitive. You know what I mean? Like that's just going to be part of who they are. Things like empathy, things like emotional intelligence are so, such greater predictors of success for children in this world than things like IQ and standardized testing. So that's, I think the other big piece for me is just make a commitment to really teach your kids about empathy. The way that I do that with my kids, we read a lot of books. There's tons of book lists out there that will kind of teach you how to have those conversations on different developmental levels. When he asked me a question about why does some, why is that person in a wheelchair? We have a conversation about it. It's a lot of changing the conversations that you have your, with your child. For instance, when I pick my son up from school, I don't say, how was your day? But the first question I have asked Micah since I picked him up from school and preschool is, tell me one way that you were a good friend today. And so it's really just in the language and the conversations that you have with your children. I don't think kids are too young to have these conversations to talk about, talk about things about race. But I really think if you teach your kids to be empathetic and care about people, no matter what they look like and who they choose to love, I think that will have the biggest impact in terms of changing our world for the future. 
love that. And I, I know you mentioned earlier, you were a little bit more shy and quiet. And I love that advice. It just goes to show you are really a woman of your word and you will walk the walk. And I think that's so huge. And I've also heard about parents kind of motivating their kids by just results driven. So the fact that you are just building up your children on how they are a good friend, you're just already instilling those values in them to be a good person first. Yeah. And I think that comes a lot from my experience. I don't want my kids to be a nervous wreck like I was, and I don't want them to ever feel like they are disappointing me. I want them to do things because they love to do them, not because they're necessarily good at them or because they feel pressure to be good at them. I think the other piece of advice I would give to people in terms of being supportive is that recognize that kids more than anybody are the people that need allies because they just don't understand what's happening to them. And they're trying to process it at the same time as, you know, the race racism and the discrimination is coming at them. I love that all of my friends are stepping up and wanting to know ways to improve and they want to support me, but I really feel like the, the group that needs it are our children. And so empowering your children to be allies for their black classmates, classmates of color is really the most important thing right now, because again, those are the, the people that need the support. And the other thing that I will say is So I I talked about how I think sports was really a saving grace for me and our community. And I I think it took me a long time to really realize this when I talked about, you know, my support network. Another reason why I was really lucky and I think a huge key to my success is that not only were my friends really supportive and my teammate or my teammates and my coaches were supportive, but my core group of friends, I can't say enough about how supportive their parents were of me. In our community where it wasn't necessarily, you know, the normal thing for your child to have a friend that's black, my two, I think, closest friends were, you know, Aaron Boyd and then my friend Alyssa Schutte. So Alyssa's parents, Karen and Dennis, and then Aaron's parents, Becky and Dave. They were so supportive of me and treated me as one of their own. I had a dad that worked full-time nights, slept all day. I also had a mom that worked full-time during the day. I just didn't come from a family where it was, it wasn't a priority for them to come to my sporting events. And so those parents picked me up, dropped me off. I mean, Becky and Dave, like when she would pack a lunch for Aaron at a track meet, she would pack a lunch for me. It was small little things that they did that they probably don't even realize. I feel like I'm getting... emotional about it, but um, they were very protective of me and really supportive. And we never had these conversations, but I don't doubt for a second that if someone would have made a racist comment about me, that they would have protected me like their own. So I hope when I was in high school, I showed my gratitude to them, but I am so thankful for them today. So that's the other thing I would say, obviously empower your children to be allies to their friends, but walk the walk as a parent too, and also be an ally for their friends because it means a lot. And it's a huge reason why I'm successful today. I'm sorry. I didn't expect to do that, but I I apologize. Oh no, it's really like, so (laughs) it's meaningful and it's, I'm just so grateful for your vulnerability and yeah. Wow. (laughs) Thank you for sharing. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. Of course. I'd like to ask you just to speak on maybe for coaches and Black athletes today who are young and coming up in this crazy world that we're living in, what advice do you have for them? What can they do to feel like they're speaking up for themselves and that they're asserting that they're they're worthy? And how can they do that without maybe putting all that perfection on them that you were speaking about earlier? 
Yeah, I think that one big thing, so my high school track coach was Coach Ben Schall, who is to this day, one of my closest friends. He actually gave me away at my wedding. Something about him that I think really helped me and other teammates is that he took an interest in us beyond track. So a lot of conversations that I would have with Mr. Shaw were about my other classes and my interests outside of track and kind of what my goals were and what I wanted to do with my future. And so I think that's one important thing is is really just to take an interest in your athletes outside of track. And so that just is taking it to another level to kind of show that you care about them as people. And I think that's really important for white coaches that have black athletes because it, I think it sends the message that you aren't just an athlete to me, you know, you mean more to me than just this sport. So I think that's one big thing. The other thing I think is really important, and I think it goes, it speaks to the ally part of things again, is that when there are instances that happen, I mean, again, when you are, will go to a predominantly white kind of country school and you compete against schools that are even more white and farm towns, country schools, things are going to be said, you know, you're going to go, you're going to play a basketball game and someone are, is going to shout something inappropriate from the crowd. People are going to, I don't, I feel like that happened less in track for sure, but I definitely remember that happening during basketball. I think that you have to call that out in the moment. You have to tell the refs to stop. You need to talk to the crowd. It's a scary, uncomfortable thing, but what you do in that moment plays into how that black athlete feels about themselves and whether or not they trust you and know that you have their back. So I think that's a big thing that coaches can do is that you have to be willing to step up for your, your athletes have their back and call out racism when you see it, even if it makes you uncomfortable. Because ignoring it and being silent in that situation, I think speaks volumes to athletes. I mean, I, I'm 39 years old. And I, to this day, remember my second grade language arts teacher. That's the first, there was a kid in my class. So I will not say his name, even though I remember it. Looked me right in the face and called me a black face. And I was like, what are you talking about? And I, that was the first time that I ever remember someone saying that to me. And my second grade reading language arts teacher heard him and she lost it. And let me just say, this woman was the nicest woman. She's like the woman version of Mr. Rogers. And she lost it and like screamed at him and just zero tolerance for that in the moment. And I remember that to this, I mean, that was second grade. I also remember the same thing happening in seventh grade, my seventh grade science teacher. And it wasn't even a situation that involved me, but there was a white classmate that made a disparaging comment to one of my black classmates. And he, the same, just addressed it in the moment, stopped it, showed zero tolerance for him for it, talked about why it was inappropriate and like walked that kid to the office. And so it matters um, when you're a black kid in a white school, um, those things are meaningful for you and they stay with you forever to know that people that are in leadership roles, that are your teachers, that are your coaches, that they support you and they have your back. I think that's the advice I would give to coaches and educators um, in these situations It's just Get to know your athletes as people beyond their sport and then just call out racism when it happens and defend your athletes so that they, they know that you, you care for them and that you have their back. Because it, again, it's, it will stick with them forever. Wow, that is great advice. Thank you for sharing that. Marquita, I'm going to hit you with a kind of big question here. So you have mentioned just the importance that sports has played in your life, growing up as an athlete into individual, professional, all through life. So my question for you is, what is your vision for the future of the country embracing racial differences? But more importantly, what role do you think that sports can play in something like that? That is a big question. My vision for the country is represented in what I saw in my son's kindergarten class this year. I wish I had a picture I could show you, but his kindergarten class was beautiful. I mean, he had Latino children, 
there were several black children, mixed race children, white children, Indian children. And it was just a beautiful thing to see. Not only is his class completely diverse, that's not something that stands out to them. You could have asked anyone in that class, you know, what makes you different from this person? And they're all going to tell you hair color. I don't know why hair color is the thing, but like, that's what my son always tells me. Well, he has brown hair and I have this hair. He has yellow hair. But I think that's my vision for this country is just increased diversity in every aspect of life in healthcare and law enforcement and educational school systems, just everywhere. And I think that that's going to take a lot. I mean, I think it's, it's, there's so many variables that play into that. Not only is it changing people's minds, and starting these conversations so that people are talking to one another and understanding things like systemic racism and implicit biases and having the tough conversations and a commitment to change. But it's also, it's a willingness to do things that feel really uncomfortable. And it's also a willingness to address a lot of other systemic issues. Like I I think I mentioned it before, but poverty is a big thing. It plays into a lot of things in, in terms of children's achievement and children of color and their achievements and even like children of color that are more likely to go on and become professionals if they have teachers that look like them throughout their path. It's all these little things and all these little variables that add up. But my vision for the future is just to have diversity in every field and every place in our country. And for that just to be the norm and not to be something that stands out or draws somebody attention. Like I wish, I wish I wouldn't look at his classroom and say, oh, look how beautiful this. I wish it was just the normal thing and that that's what our country is and what we're accepting of and not just accepting of it, but also like that's the expectation. So I would like to just see diversity across the board everywhere. I would like to see more people of color. I'd like to see more women in leadership roles in our country and all professions. But again, I think it's just you got to start with addressing and admitting that there are issues and identifying what they are and having people that are willing to, to address those things and have the tough conversations. And sadly, I just don't think we're, we're there yet, but I have been optimistic based on the changes and the things that I've seen over the past, I don't know, a couple weeks to months and just kind of how so many people in the country that look different have united and are behind this and are talking about social and racial injustice more than they were before. And I also, I think, am hopeful when I look at my son and his kids or his classmates um, and his teammates and the conversations they have, that gives me hope for the future for sure. Love that. Let's hope we keep getting closer to that vision. I think that people will often say that sports unite us more than it divides us. And I think that that can be true, but I think the examples need to be set on the professional level because that is where the viewing is, right? Like the NFL is a machine in the United States. So many people watch that. The NBA is that way. And both of those arenas are diverse and have different people of, you know, different colors and different cultures and religions and even sexuality. But I think it gets back to leadership for that. So those are the athletes. Athletes are diverse, but the managers aren't diverse. The coaches aren't really all that diverse. And certainly the owners aren't diverse. And so those conversations have to start at the top. I mean, I think the Colin Kaepernick protest is a huge example, right? Here's somebody who was speaking out exactly about what we're dealing with currently. And people are kind of like, oh, you know, maybe he wasn't that wrong. But... (laughs) In an improved country, what would happen is all the owners would respect him for making that decision and support him for making that decision. And the managers would support him for making that decision and coaches would support him for making that decision and get behind him and ask him about, let's have conversations about this. You're hurting, other people are hurting. What can we do to help? Rather than he loses his job and still now doesn't have a job. I think that was a perfect example of being an ally and showing support to your your athletes that wasn't. And there's a lot of reasons that go into that. Not necessarily reasons I agree with 
or care about. But I think sports can certainly unite people. But I think in our country, based on what the NFL is and what the NBA is and what professional sports are, it has to start there and they're not there. And it's sad. Very well said. Marquita, as we close out on this podcast, we do have one final question for you. What is the greatest piece of advice you have ever been given? It's hard to pick one because I have like a sports one and then I also have one, like a life one. So my sports one was something that my high school track coach said to me. And I think because I was an anxious mess, anytime I was going into a race where I know the girl I was racing had a faster time than me, that would psych me out in high school and I would fixate on that. And he would say to me, just, just calm down. Like she may have a faster time than you, but make her run her personal best to beat you. Even if someone's faster than you, make them run their fastest to actually beat you. And I didn't, I don't think I, I, maybe I heard it in high school, but I didn't really, I think, apply it until college. Because in high school where it scared me, in college, it motivated me. Like, I don't care if this girl's faster than me. The girl that was my rival that I raced all the time, you know what? She may get me today, but I'm going to get her next time. And if I am, she is going to beat me today. She's going to run her fast. I'm going to make her run faster than she wanted to. And she's going to have to run her best to beat me. Someone might always be faster than you, but make them run their fastest to beat you. That was a really good motivator for me. And then from a life perspective, it's something more recent. A a mentor of mine at the the hospital said to me, you know, Marquita, so many people make a mistake. They think that they will only be happy in their life outside of work when they're successful at work. But the reality of the situation is if you are happy in your life outside of work, you're going to be more successful at work. And so that's probably the biggest piece of advice I've heard about kind of the way I balance my life. And it's absolutely true. And I I have actually written out on a card in my office to remind me of that. I think it's like a reminder that the workday's over, go home and be with your family. And it's absolutely true. Like when I am spending more time with my family and our schedules line up, I'm much happier and I'm much more balanced at work. And I do think I'm more productive and more successful. And when things start to get stressful at work it's usually at times where you know my husband's in season because he's a cross-country coach we're balancing that plus my full-time schedule and getting you know shuffling our kids to different places and so I will oftentimes schedule in like when I'm feeling that way and I'm feeling stressed and I'm having less job satisfaction I will schedule in afternoons off or days off or we should go away this weekend just to kind of recenter myself and and find that balance again those are such great pieces of advice (laughs) gosh First of all, thank you so much for yeah. just spending time with us today. Yeah. It's been really just such a wonderful conversation and I think very helpful for our community. We want to know, like, where can people find you to follow along with you as a person and just your journey? Like, how can people connect with you if they want to? The Nationwide Children's Hospital website will tell you kind of what I'm doing in terms of research in my role. I'm on Instagram. Um, I'm on Twitter. Um, and it's just at Marquita Subtle for all of those. It's largely me posting pictures of my very cute sons. Um, but occasionally, like I will post resources and things that I think are helpful for people that are trying to be allies and who are trying to be part of the change. Um, so yeah, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram at Marquita Subtle. That's where you can reach me. Um, but it's been great. This was really fun. Well, we appreciate your time so much and just so grateful that you spent so much time and we're so open. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you for reaching out and inviting me. This was great. It's such a great idea. So what I loved most about Marquita's interview was her sheer determination to find success athletically, academically, and professionally, and most of all, ending up finding joy in competing in the sport she loves 
as she grew confidence in being enough. I agree. I think it was just really cool to see her perspective on the perfectionist side of who she is and how she was able to take that and turn it into something that she actually loved and enjoyed again. Absolutely. If you know an awesome coach or athlete who would be a great guest on our show, nominate them at sportfuelslife.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe now so that you'll be notified when new episodes go live. Thanks for listening. Thank you.